Welcome back to the Pacific Century, a Hoover Institution podcast on China, America, the Indo-Pacific, and the fate of the world. I'm Misha Oslin, a Hoover Fellow and your host, usually joined by my co-host in crime, John Yu, a professor at the University of California, Berkeley. But John is not here today. I think we're taping a little bit too early for John because we are once again hopping over the pond over the Atlantic to join our friends in London to talk about Asia and the Indo-Pacific from the vantage point of the River Thames. And I am thrilled, first of all, to welcome back to the program our old friend and indeed once our co-host, Tom Tugendhat, MP, Member of Parliament and the Chair of the Foreign Affairs Committee. And he is joined uh, by uh, my good friend and old friend, Rana Mitter. Not that Rana's old, but we have been friends for a long time, who was also a guest on the show, actually back in the early days when I think we didn't even know what we were doing, but we had a fantastic talk about the 100th anniversary of the May 4th Uh, movement in China, and uh, we wanted to have Rana back on numerous occasions, and we're thrilled that he's with us today. And also rounding out the Tres Amigos, or I guess I should say Tres Amis, although you're out of the European Union, is Cindy Yu, the uh, online editor, if I have that correct, Cindy, of The Spectator UK. Is that correct? No, you've given me a promotion there, Misha. I'm the broadcast editor. The broadcast. Well, I've already I've already talked to Fraser, and the promotion will be coming through. So we are Excellent. thrilled to have Cindy uh, join us for the first time on the Pacific Century. Uh, for those of you who do not always follow um, media, social media, and the like in uh, the UK, uh, our three friends Tom, Rana, and Cindy actually are are often together talking about these issues uh, on British media, and so we're absolutely thrilled that they could join us to talk to uh, the American side of the equation today. And there's a reason we're doing this, uh, which is the release last week of what is known as the Integrated Review by uh, the UK government, the the government of Prime Minister Boris Johnson, which covers the gamut uh, of the UK's security and and defense and technological policies. And we're going to talk about that, but particularly has a lot to say about the Indo-Pacific and the UK's aspirations in the Indo-Pacific, what it wants to do. And so we wanted to get uh, the pers- uh, the perspective of policymakers and, and opinion makers and thought leaders. And that's why we've called uh, Tom, Rana, and Cindy together here to join us. So let me start, Tom, uh, if I can. First of all, welcome back, Tom. Misha, it's lovely to be back with you. Uh, what- How are you? I'm great. And now that I have the same microphone as you do that I've already been told, it doesn't sound anything like you. I'm going to, I'm going to do my best, however. Well, I'm, I'm sure that it's only a matter of time that when you come over here, start teaching at Oxford with Rana, pick up a program and, you know, start writing with a spectator. Soon your accent will be exactly like mine. If only. These are, these are the dreams and hopes we have for a, a new millennium. Um, Tom, let's, let's start with the integrated review. Um, what is it? And, and uh, you know, to be honest, why should Americans care about it? So, look, the, uh, the integrated review is basically our quadrennial defense review in American terms. And uh, in that, it, it does exactly what QDRs do throughout the ages, which is it puts out a huge amount of words, which mean vague things, which may or may not get money and which end up uh, directing a few general ideas and most embassies, most different departments in the Department of Defense end up ignoring. So the reality (laughs) is uh, that it's a a, a strategic document that uh, is largely there to gather dust, but is mostly intended to try and focus efforts. Well, if it's uh, intended to, uh, to, to 
gather dust or or faded to gather dust. I mean, it took a it took a very long time. I mean, I think the review was expected last year. Um, we're now into what the end of the the first quarter here, uh, and it's been touted as the most significant review of of British foreign policy, security policy, and the like since the end of the Cold War. Is there anything, as you look at it? sitting from the perspective of parliament um, that is is particularly noteworthy and, and I think noteworthy for the United States and the new Biden administration to to think about. So there's a, there's many noteworthy things in it and and it's certainly an evolution on uh, previous uh, efforts. The 2015 report uh, was more focused on the economy. The 2010 uh, report was again more focused on uh, fighting terrorism, obviously, and and the so-called Blair's Wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. And this is therefore a reset. I'm not. I think they all claim to be the most dramatic since the end of the Cold War. I'm I'm sure this one makes that claim. I'm not quite sure it feels. What it, did but, they say but, during but, the Cold War? Oh, I presume it was since the end of the Second World War, wasn't oh, it? Oh, that's right. It must have been. Yeah. Of course. So uh, you know, so, but it's it's. It's uh, it certainly lays out a few ideas and uh, that are worth noting. And the first, of course, is the so-called pivot to the Indo-Pacific, which is uh, in many ways a, a repetition of President Obama's pivot to Asia, uh, and it and it may sadly have a similar effect, which is although it talks about uh, a lot of uh, Asian investment it isn't immediately obvious that the finances are there to support it. Now, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe we're going to see a bit more coming, but it's not immediately obvious to me. And, and as many of us will remember, President Obama's pivot to Asia didn't do very much in Asia and seemed to do an awful lot more in the Middle East. But, you know, I suppose Asia does begin in Asia Minor if you're a Roman. So maybe maybe that's what he meant. I want to turn to Cindy in a, in a second to, to actually talk about the specifics of, of uh, by the way, I think, you know, the, when the Obama administration called it a pivot, it didn't go over very well. And they quickly dropped the the pivot terminology for rebalance. I think you guys are calling it the tilt, which yeah, indeed. sounds a bit like you've lost balance. But nonetheless, it's it's a tilt to the Indo-Pacific. Um, I, I did, Before I turn to Cindy, though, I, I wanted to add, mention one thing, get your reaction, and then ask one thing. The, the, the comment is that when you read through the... Um, uh, through the, the the document as I have it, there is an interesting uh, take on no longer um, simply trying to defend uh, what we often refer to as the liberal international order or the rules-based international order from World War II, but instead actively trying to shape a new order that is emerging because of challengers such as China, of course, Russia. Uh, one could probably put Iran in there and the like. Um, how do you respond to that? Does that does that make sense to you that that uh, this is something where Britain's going to be charting uh, ostensibly some sort of new territory, or has it missed the mark in in sort of saying that well that era seems to be over and we've got to now come up with something new? Well, I think that's the most interesting thing about this. Effectively, it's recognizing that the old order is over, or rather, is no longer. Uh, the norm and that it's being challenged. And so I think that the, the really the, the interesting things about this is the recognition that if you want a liberal order, you're going to have to fight for it now. It's not just going to be taken for granted. And of course, the big element in that is the is the reassertion of China 
uh, as a global power uh, for the first time, really, in a few hundred years. And the second thing is the is the science and technology element. And, and together, those two elements are really at the core of this review. So although the tilt to Asia is what's been spoken about, or the fact that it barely mentions Europe at all, the reality is that the, the interesting bits are about defending the international rules-based system is no longer the words. It's no longer what we're talking about. It's actually instead, it's creating a new system of global order and, and trying to do so with democratic partners. I'd like to come back to that. I think later on, remind me to circle back to that and get, you know, all of your thoughts about that in relation to the Biden administration, which is is going to have to release its own national security strategy and did release an interim uh, the other week. Um, again, quickly, though, before I turn over to uh, move over to, to Cindy, um, the uh, the integrated review is paired with a defense review as well. And that was released a week later, actually it was released this week uh, as a former Royal Marine, as someone who uh, spent a lot of time in Afghanistan. Uh, I, you're chair of the Foreign Affairs Committee, but obviously you look at security issues. Um, what what's, uh, struck you uh, from the, um, the defense review? Did, was it adequate? Are you, are you, uh, uh, you know, supportive of it as a policymaker? Does it not do what it needs to do? Well, look, I was a, a, an army officer, actually. I did spend the best part of 10 years doing favours for sailors, but that's not quite the same as being a, <laughs> a, a Royal Marine. Um, so um, I, I did serve alongside the Royal Marines uh, extremely closely for many years in combat in Afghanistan and Iraq. Um, but the, by the, by um, the way, if, and, if I could, just to let you know, uh, our next guests are going to be uh, Matt Pottinger and Mike Gallagher, two U.S. Marines. So I'm not going to make the same mistake of talking to them about <laughs> being in the army. Trust me. So, so at least one of them is one of the sailors I did favours for. So I'll leave oh, it at that. So, excellent. Got so many questions. So they are, they are, they are, they are both exceptionally uh, talented individuals. And if they'd ever learned to read, they would have been in the army. Um, the, the. So he claims the. Um, the um look they're both they're both fantastic guys and they're both very dear friends as you can probably guess um the um the reality though of the of the defense review is that it, it's raised quite a lot of questions first of all um it's made promises to the east uh basing arrangements in singapore uh, an increased commitment to the east um but the ship numbers are not increasing noticeably there's a certainly an increase in spending but mo most of that is actually going to fill the gap in in terms of the expense of rebuilding our submarine capability and uh, developing uh, and and re-equipping re our armed forces so it's going to be interesting to see um quite what these budgets end up doing because of course the in there is a big difference in military terms of input and output you can put an awful lot of money in and get very little out and certainly seeing the armed forces uh, numbers go down so the royal marines for example who number about 6,500 at the moment are going down by 400, which is a significant uh, reduction. The army's going down by uh, about 5,000 regular, possibly up to 10,000. And uh, even the Navy and the Air Force uh, are losing uh, manpower. And this is an issue because, of course, if you're going to be basing further away, you actually need to have uh, higher numbers of individual sailors, uh, airmen, Marines and soldiers in order to increase rotations so uh, you, you know for all the jokes i can make about uh, serving alongside royal marines i can tell you they are an exceptional bunch of individuals who are extremely well trained and extremely capable and all of them have options and opportunities elsewhere if they would seek them and while um, young men and women do seek adventure uh, and opportunity 
if you want to keep talent and you want to maintain capability, you need to keep people when they're going up the career ladder so that you keep sergeants and officers, you know, sergeants and majors and colonels uh, who are people who begin to have families. And that's where harmony guidelines become so important and why numbers matter, because you can always recruit uh, at the bottom, if you like, you can always recruit highly talented individuals who want to join as Marines or uh, second lieutenants, uh, you know, who are looking for a start in life. It's hard to keep talent. Yeah, um, I, there's there's actually a lot uh, to talk about there, and I think if I read correctly, the uh, the army is actually going down to the lowest number uh, standing since you guys were fighting Boney. So um, you know that that's quite some time ago. Um, but but we want to we want to stick uh, with uh, the, the Indo Pacific for now, and I, I'd I'd like to uh, bring Cindy in. And Cindy, you look at this stuff uh, regularly um, from the UK perspective for the Spectator, uh, which by the way is a uh, a magazine that everyone should be reading if you're not the the both the uk and the us uh editions are are really wonderful uh and i've and i've loved being able to um uh to uh, to write for them and, and do some podcasts um but can you talk about cindy what what is the tilt to the indo-pacific what is it that the integrated review said it was going to do about the indo-pacific and and can you give us an assessment you know do, do you think that this is it, it's realistic and it's right or not so I think it can be split down uh, two broad tracks. One, the tilt is about military presence in the Indo-Pacific area. And Tom's already talked very well about the manpower deductions there. Um, but we're also going to be seeing more um, naval presence, I would think. So in May, uh, the HMS Elizabeth, which is one of the UK's uh, aircraft carriers, is going to go there for her maiden voyage with American troops. So parading basically in the South and East China Seas um, and protecting the international order is what the defense uh, is what the integrated review says um, diplomatically as a, a sort of be, uh, side note to that uh, also joining more uh, regional uh, alliances like ASEAN the uh, 10 nation block of Southeast Asian nations um, and also on trade as well so there's a lot of talk around about CPTPP um, of course and um, the International Trade Secretary here Liz Truss has this as one of her hobby horses and all 10 members has, have already signaled that they would uh, vote for the UK to join so we'll We'll see how that goes later this year. And this is coming, obviously, in the context of Brexit Britain, global Britain, as Boris Johnson wants to relabel it. So if not trading with the EU and if a US trade deal is nowhere to be seen for now, then the next clear place to look for trade is Asia. But I think that on, I think the, the term Indo-Pacific actually is actually quite revealing. What does it mean? It means the India Ocean and the Pacific Ocean. And actually, it's quite a new buzzword in foreign policy areas. Um, until a few years ago, when Shinzo Abe, the Japanese prime minister, popularized it in a, in a speech, the, the notion of Indo-Pacific was probably more accurately described as Asia, right? But this actually, <laughs> um, this actually s surrounds a lot of area. And what I would be interested in, in seeing in, in the carrying out of this integrated review is how much much of the nuances of Asia that uh, an Indo-Pacific tilt in quotation marks actually takes into account, by which I mean South Asia has different problems to East Asia 
and East Asia has different problems with Southeast Asia. And the politics and the interests there are all different. What links them together? China, that giant in the region. Um, and so the Indo-Pacific tilt, even though it doesn't mention China too much uh, in the review, can be seen, I think, w- completely within the lens of containing China, both uh, in terms of British trade links and also in terms of British military links, because that's what links those country countries together. In ASEAN, China is not a member of CPTPP, China is not a member of um, China's not going to be very happy about this May deployment of the HMS Elizabeth. So all of this is an attempt to gather around the middle nations in Asia, like Japan, um, like India, and in the Pacific, like Australia, to form a sort of um, next stage of the process to tackle China now that now that Trump is out and multilateralism is more of an option. So, so that's how I read it. And I, I guess I would worry about the pitfall of conflating such a huge area in a pretty new foreign policy buzzword. So is it fair then, I mean, again, thinking at it from an American perspective, is is the Indo-Pacific, or you're right, you know, a few years ago we call it the Asia-Pacific or Asia, um, former uh, PACOM commander, Pacific Command, which is now Indo-Pacific Command, wanted to call it the Indo-Asia-Pacific. I think, you know, you could start tacking on a ton of, of, of different, uh, you know, modifiers. But um, is it fair to say, or would we be reading too much into it, that Asia, the Indo-Pacific, is becoming a priority in, in British foreign policy. I mean, you know, for an American perspective, we're thinking, you know, you're still a European power, whether in the EU or not. Is it realistic to, to try to be an Asian power? Or is that misreading what the integrated review is, is trying to come up with? So I think it's a very good question. In terms of military, what I understand, and, you know, Tom can correct me on this, is that the British military presence is actually bolstering to the American military presence there in terms of the legitimacy of the American presence, not necessarily in terms of manpower or equipment or anything like that, because the British Army, uh, you know, as Tom has mentioned, the manpower is going down. Um, but that soft power prestige that Britain lends, I think, can be powerful there. Um, and in terms of trade, you're right. You know, joining CPTPP might not make much sense for Britain, but there is also the digital economy to consider where distance is less of an issue. So uh, the UK could play an, play an active and potentially even leading role in that. Um, what's interesting is that France and Germany have also talked about an Indo-Pacific tilt. So it's clear that European powers, um, not just the UK, see this as the next phase, um, the next hotspot of international relations. Um I think I think you know how much it is actually going to guide foreign policy depends on you know Tom said at the beginning is this one of those reviews that's there to gather dust potentially or maybe it's going to be implemented who knows I also talked to a senior Tory who said that all def- this defense review is like all others which is that it's wrong <laughs> so we'll just have to see how it actually ends up being I think in in a few years time well I think the the point you made about uh, both France and Germany is is interesting we've we've mentioned it here uh, I think we actually talked Tom uh, about it when you were on the show. Um, They both released um, strategies uh, in the past. France has actually released a couple of strategies, including a security strategy. Germany just released a strategy. I think we're all waiting for a UK Indo-Pacific strategy. Um, But the point is that it is new, and and I think it's important for Washington uh, to be aware of it and thinking about it beyond the sort of general um, lip service of, of course, you know, we're happy to see our European friends involved, but to actually think about how you would begin melding and meshing and building off of each other's competencies. For example, the U.S. is not very present in the Indian Ocean. I mean, of course, we we steam through there and the like. But uh, un- unlike 
the UK, which has territory in, in the Indian Ocean, not only Diego Garcia, but other territory and interests. France, of course, has territory there. So there is a lot of complementarity, and I think it would be very useful for Washington to be thinking much more innovatively about uh, how how this um, how this all everyone can work together. Um, I want to I want to circle eventually to to China, which, as Cindy, as you pointed out, is sort of the linchpin of so much of this. But but Rana, before that. I'd like to get a little history. I think it's important to put it in, in some perspective of the UK in in Asia. Um, what Americans may or may not be familiar with was the 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 move west of Suez, east of Suez, um, and and the degree to which in the intervening fifty years or so the UK has remained involved or the degree to which it's really lost much of the, the raison d'etre for, for getting engaged in, uh, in the Indo-Pacific. How do you see both Britain's recent traditional role, I don't mean before 1970 and, and, and before the, the move west of Suez, but how do you see the, 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 the recent traditional role of the last 50 years? And as you read the Integrated Review, is this is is this filling a need? Is it asking for trouble? Where do you come down on on talking about how Britons should now be thinking about the Indo-Pacific? Really important questions, Misha. And I think uh, it's fair to say that history is one of the elements that is, I think, you know, frequently lacking from the way in which the current debate around this review is going on in the UK at the, the moment. And I should say that's particularly surprising since I do want to pay tribute, actually, to the fact that the, you know, guiding mind behind this review is actually a professional historian, Professor John Bew of King's College London, who's um, I think probably well known to this podcast in in general, but uh, currently seconded to government. When he gets out, you've got to have him on and uh, find out what really, really went on. We are waiting to, in fact, I was talking with John and we're waiting to get him on, a good friend of all of ours, yes. Indeed. So anyway, I think it's, in a sense, I would say it's a very good sign that actually a very well-regarded and impressive professional historian was asked to look at this very forward-looking question. And in terms of the history of it, I mean, we were talking earlier about, you know, the most important review since the Cold War, the Second World War. Actually, I think that that moment you you just referred to, but just to make it specific for for listeners, uh, Misha, the Harold Wilson government in the late 1960s, which was the one that sort of did the deed, that basically said we're going to pull back essentially the vast majority of British military presence, security presence to east of, well, west of Suez, east of Aden, however, west of Aden, however you want to put it. But basically, the Middle East is about as far as we uh, as far as we go. Even then, it was never a complete commitment because, of course, Hong Kong remained uh, a British commitment until 1997. But of course, Hong Kong by then was already beginning to emerge in the minds, the British official mind, as a problem that would have to be solved. And essentially, it was only about, oh, I don't know, 10, 15 years after that, under the um, governorship of the splendid named Sir Murray Maclehose, that the negotiation started that eventually became things that have become very, very current in the last few months, weeks, days, you know, the 1984 joint agreement and so forth. We won't go too far down the Hong Kong route, but just to remind ourselves that none of this popped up yesterday. It's been there for for quite a while. So I give all that by way of saying that actually, I think I would like to argue that there is something potentially historically quite meaningful about this review as opposed to some of the others. I think that Tom is, you know, right. Tom is always right, of course, as is Cindy as well. But, you know, Tom's right that these reviews tend to have 114 pages, packed full of information, an awful lot goes by the board because there's not enough money or because there's not enough attention span or because a pandemic or something suddenly emerges and people's attentions are put elsewhere. And we have to be realistic about that. 
But I did think actually that the review in terms of the Indo-Pacific more broadly, and uh, as you say, it's a term that sort of made its way from Japan through Washington, now firmly landed in London, at least in, in policy circles for the, uh, for the moment. But also um, beyond that, to the question of, of China, that it's set up actually two challenges. Um, and I should say for anyone who wants to get more of this, um, I have written a short piece about this for the South China Morning Post. Since the Post is based in Hong Kong, I should say that only true patriots are allowed to read the article. So make sure that you fill that qualification before clicking the link. Otherwise, you know, people will come and talk to you in an extremely threatening sort of a way. But the point that I made in that Post article, uh, Misha, is that I think that there are two challenges about engagement with China in particular, and the Asia Pacific more generally, or the Indo-Pacific more generally, one broadly for Britain, and one for China. If I may, I'll briefly just speak about that each. For Britain, in a sense, it's simpler. And I should say, I'm well inclined towards this part of the review. I mean, you know, I'm a historian of Asia. For decades, I spent lives doing, you know, the most obscure topic you could possibly do as a university teacher. And suddenly, you know, people actually care about what you do. So how would I not like this review? But the thing that worries me is that as with so many other things that are pledged, you know, not just this government, but actually governments around the world, it's great to have the aspiration, but where is the strategy to implement it and where's the cash? Now, Cindy and Tom have both talked about the military. So in a sense, I want to switch to a slightly different direction because actually remember the full title of the review. It is, if I remember correctly, the Integrated Review on Security, Defense, Trade and Foreign Policy. I think in that order, which is kind of interesting in and of itself, but we won't, we won't go into the psychology of, uh, of that. But the points about trade and foreign policy have to be kept in mind when we're thinking about you know, China and the region more broadly. And one of the things that I think needs to really be upgraded in a way that, you know, it's evident we don't have at the moment, is expertise on the region. The UK, certainly compared to Washington DC, certainly compared to the United States, is still very, very undersupplied when it comes to people who know the region that we're supposed to be tilting towards. So, you know, for many of us, that does, of course, include the question of languages. You know, we produce a few hundred, maybe even low number of thousands of graduates each year in Japanese, Chinese, Korean, even fewer, actually, it has to be said. Uh, but, you know, actually, if we're talking about the Indo-Pacific. Well, there was a long period when it was thought that basically speaking English is enough to get you around in India. I think the prime ministership of Narendra Modi has made it very clear that that's no longer the case. The number of students studying Hindi or Urdu or indeed Bengali who are not from those backgrounds actually is tiny and I think actually much smaller than it is for the East Asian languages, which um, uh, have at least this sort of, you know, kind of trading uh, element uh, to them that's encouraged some some people. So I think thinking about that sort of thing, you know, just one example I've, I've given is that the British institution SOAS, which is, um, I always, it's, it's an institution that teaches um, uh, Asian and African languages. And I always like to think of it, um, and many friends, my friends <laughs> teach there, so forgive me saying this, uh, in the way that the... Um, Comedian Ennio Flaiano described the state of Italy when he was asked about it in the 60s, he said, what is the condition of Italy? Someone asked him and he replied, fatal, but not serious. It's a place <laughs> that's always sort of seems to be in trouble, but never quite goes over the edge. Well, look, a center of that sort with global standing actually should be a national, indeed an international uh, resource and should be properly treated um, treated that way. Beyond that, you know, civil servants, business people, media Members of Parliament, dare I say, not learning, you know, Mandarin. I mean, that's going to take far too long, and you know, there's there's not the time. Let's be realistic. But you know, getting China savvy, getting Japan savvy, working out. I mean, you're a you know uh, expert Japanologist yourself, um, Misha. You don't mind me describe that way. You know, that level of knowledge is something the UK 
doesn't have a, a, a wide enough level at the moment, really needs to help the game on. So, you know, my suggestion was the government suggesting a new global study scheme called Turing at the moment. Um, and it'd be great if there was an MP around somewhere I could. Read this, <laughs> I'll, I'll just put it out there anyway. Um, it's got actually lots of good things about it, uh, including a global reach. But it currently doesn't pay any fees for anyone taking part. It hopes that universities will have a chat to each other and kind of let each other off uh, off the fees so that students will be able to travel around the world. It's not really how universities work. Uh, so, you know, if we're serious about the, the Asia Pacific side of training the country, that needs to be done. Let me take the other element briefly, which is the challenge to China, because I think that leads us into a part of discussion that we, we, we do want to get to. One set of complaints about the review on first reading was that it was vague about China, probably a bit in some ways, some people said too soft, in other ways, actually, you know, claiming that China was both hostile and, you know, useful in certain ways. In other words, it seemed ambiguous. My own take on this that is that there's an element of that being deliberate. A, because actually I think every country in the world knows that China plays a variety of sometimes competing roles. And I thought it was very interesting that without ever mentioning it, the formulation that the review uses is very similar to that of the European Union. In other words, that China is a competitor, a collaborator and a rival in different sorts of, uh, of circumstances. But I think that in some ways, and I have no inside knowledge of the government, so I, I couldn't, couldn't tell you for sure, but it seemed to me that a message was being sent to China, which is this. Look, this country, the United Kingdom, has reappeared on the global scene in a kind of, you know, something that happens only once every one or two generations. In other words, it's just left a major local political block. It's still a significant economic power. It is, apart from anything else, just for a little factoid for folks here, for the third year running, Misha, beating the United States as the most popular place for the middle class Chinese to send their children to, to university. That's largely because it's rather hard for them to get visas into the US at the moment. But nonetheless, you know, I think that's not, not without its significance at all in terms of soft power. And all the other things we know about the permanent uh, five seat at the UN Security Council. And by the way, of course, we currently have a Mandarin speaking ambassador to the UN, Dame Barbara Woodward, who was previously in, in Beijing. So the UK has all sorts of areas where actually if there's an agenda to sort out with China in which the US, UK is, of course, you know, a five, one of the five eyes, it's going to be incredibly close to the Biden administration and yet plow something with its own path when it comes to thinking about China. Well, China needs to respond. And I think that the ambiguity, the willingness to say there are certain red lines we don't cross, but there are other areas where our new status gives us a chance to talk. Well, if you set down all your red lines at the beginning, then actually the possibility of having that conversation is less. So I'm taking this highly charitable interpretation, uh, but I think perhaps not you know, entirely unrealistic that part of the, the fuzziness around what Britain's going to do about China is because actually Britain doesn't fully know, but also because China needs to actually make it clear what it wants the answer to that question to be. And the answer, I think it's clear, cannot be co complete capitulation to everything that Beijing wants to put down. Well, it's, it's interesting uh, that you, you raise that. I want to go back to Tom. Uh, the, the report does describe China in a variety of ways, as, as both you and Cindy have mentioned. Uh, but in, in the area where it sort of blocks it off, it says China as a systemic competitor. Uh, and, you know, it, there, there is a lot of the ambiguity over where uh, the UK should be cooperating uh, or, or the degree to which it should be looking at policies that certainly from the U.S. perspective are seen as uh, intrusive and, and invasive. It seems 
you know, from from some readings to be straddling, trying to have, you know, eat your cake and have it too, which is uh, to engage with China and remain open to Chinese trade and investment, but also protect against practices that have an adverse effect. Um, Tom, you had some choice words uh, for the government in in Parliament about its its view of China, uh, and you actually just forwarded me just before we began um, a, a hot off the press article in which the uh, uh, you know we're gonna we're gonna cross into some really dangerous territory here in which the PM's father uh, stated that uh, he should see off the Tory hawks who want to create a new Cold War with Beijing, and that it is, quote, absolutely vital that Britain continues to work very closely uh, with China, which he calls the key to so many things. Um, how, how do you respond? And, and maybe you could tell us a little bit of what your reactions were to the government's statements about the, the overall view of, of China in, in the British consciousness. Well, look, I think the, the, the reality is we're dealing with a very different elements of the government. And, and the Prime Minister has described himself as a Sinophile, which is great. Uh, many of us are very, very pro-Chinese. But the reaction is problematic when you see that some people are advocating for the Communist Party and some people are merely advocating for cooperation. And this is where the challenge comes. <laughs> because unless we find a way through this conversation, then what we're going to be doing is we're going to be turning a blind eye to things like the persecution in Xinjiang, which the government still refuses to call genocide. Uh, we're going to be turning a blind eye to the democratic oversights that lead, mean that only patriots, as Rana puts it, are allowed to read uh, the South China Morning Post, by which, of course, they don't mean patriotic towards China. They mean loyal towards the Chinese Communist Party, two quite distinct uh, elements. And we find ourselves in a world where uh, actually the advocates uh, for China are not advocating for cooperation, but actually they're arguing for dominance. And this is where uh, there's a real challenge in this, uh, in this document, because although it talks quite clearly about human rights, meaning China, it talks about trade, meaning China, it talks about the pivot to uh, the tilt to the Indo-Pacific, meaning China. And so the, in fact, the whole report is about China. It then goes on to say, oh, well, and by the way, we'll trade uh, pretty much as we do now, we'll look for opportunities to trade. And so this, it, it does say, I mean, you know, uh, you know, John Bew is one of the finest thinkers in, in the UK today, and this is certainly not his responsibility because, as ever, these documents are written by committee, not just by individuals. Um, but, it's, uh, but it's certainly true that this, uh, this document does argue several positions at the same time, not all of which are entirely compatible with themselves. Uh, the, the comment that I was, uh, one of the ministers responsible said to me was, if only the uh, report was as integrated as the policy, uh, which was, uh, I thought, a little harsh, but I, I see where he was going with it. Um, the and, and the realities here, what we're dealing with is, um, as Rana puts it, a government that doesn't quite yet know what it wants to do in China. And it, it's not surprising that it doesn't, because actually... The reality is that the UK can't do it alone. You know, when Harold Wilson pulled back from uh, east of Suez, the reason he did it is because we didn't have the money uh, to maintain basing arrangements. And so we had to close our bases in Singapore and uh, elsewhere in the region. Now, the idea that Singapore is going to welcome a royal naval presence that will so annoy China uh, today, I think would be surprising, but Maybe, maybe, they, maybe they will, but uh, I feel it's unlikely. Um, 
and so there's a so there's still a question of the, the you know exactly what the UK's position will be, and actually what we need to do is not just work out what our own position is, but first we'll work out what others are, and this is where working with the Biden administration is so important because the Biden administration's policies are actually much more determinant uh, of our own. Uh, relationship with China than we sometimes are willing to admit. So, Cindy, picking up directly from that, what is the view uh, in London of uh, the Biden administration's China policies? Of course, there was the first meeting uh, last week uh, or over the weekend between um, uh, the Secretary of State, Tony Blinken, and Jake Sullivan, the National Security Advisor, uh, with their Chinese counterparts, um, Wang Yi and Jiang Zichir. Uh, Zichir. How, how does London see that this went is uh, and and what is the sort of level of of um, confidence uh, in in what the Biden administration is saying about what it wants to do? So I think one big difference with the Biden administration, this is not anything groundbreaking analysis or anything like that, is just that Biden is a multilateralist. So for policymakers um, in London, he's just much easier to work with than President Trump. And, and you know, that's just the given, right? And Biden was surprised at the way that the EU signed the investment pact with China when his seat was barely warm as he was inaugurated. Biden wants to talk to other countries about their approach. And I think in London, there's a recognition of that. And as Tom says, his policy will be determinant on the British policy. And I think we see that in this integrated review, you know, uh, something I wrote recently, taking a look at Biden's words on China compared to Boris Johnson's words on China. And Biden says, we must prepare together for long-term strategic competition with China. We cannot and must not return to the reflexive opposition and rigid blocks of the Cold War. Now, those could have been words taken out of the Prime Minister's own speech on the integrated review. And, you know, that's that's no accident. Um, and as you as, as you've mentioned before, you know it's similar words to what the EU has used as well. So on on certainly on rhetoric, it seems like the West is united. I guess the question is whether or not on these case by case basis, you know, if there's going to be so much unity. I think for the UK, there's particularly Brexit to think about, which is that given that the UK has left the European Union. America is sort of the, the where a lot of Brexiteers see the UK's future foreign policy uh, direction as taken from. And so that's why they, we've got so much about climate change in the integrated review, not because people here don't believe in climate change, but because people know that Biden is also is, is one of his key um, ad- items on the agenda. And that's why we see so much attention going to COP26, this UN climate summit that's happening in Scotland later this year. The UK wants to be seen as, the, as America's right-hand man when it comes to China and other issues. Um, and I think Biden makes it makes it easier to do that. Um, I think there was a lot of surprise in Westminster, and Tom, you can, you can correct me if I'm wrong here, about how Anchorage went down, about um, Wang uh, remarks that went on for 18 minutes, wasn't it? Um, so I think there was a lot of surprise over the Chinese reaction to that. But and I'd be interested in what Rana thinks about this. I wonder how much of that was performative and um, because the briefing of it came afterwards, which is uh, you know, the, after journalists left the room, the constri- the con- conversation was quite constructive. And certainly for both sides, it would be, see- it would suit them to be seen as being tough on the other side. So I, I, we'll have to see 
um, how much of that really does translate to worse um, American-Chinese relations in the future. Um, but certainly Biden being, bilat- uh, being multilateral makes it much easier for, for British leaders to, to work with them. So, Rana, uh, some, some of the other uh, comments, Cindy mentioned that, that the, uh, there were indications that the private co- uh, discussions were uh, productive. I've also heard that the private discussions were just as testy as the public discussion was uh, once the press was was ushered out and and there was a, a great deal of of you know commentary and um, you know what we used to call Kremlinology on uh, trying to understand why uh, the the Chinese took the position they did of course you know the US had just 24 hours before sanctioned 24 members uh, and and had also made some other hardline comments, um, how much of it was performative? How much of it was for uh, either a Chinese audience or the only audience that matters in China, Xi Jinping? Uh, or how much of it do you think was was real in, in the sense of uh, a throwing down a gauntlet to, uh, to the Biden administration that, that things are different from the last time you were in office, which was four years ago? I think a lot of it, I think it was actually very carefully calculated, but I actually push back slightly on your um, statement that the only audience that matters is Xi Jinping. I understand, you know, what, 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 why you would say that. And of course, you know, the centrality of Xi Jinping to governance in China today is not to be doubted. He is clearly a very different sort of president from his two predecessors a decade or two decades uh, ago. But actually, I would say that the emergence of the world of social media in China and of a highly nationalist public, which um, is not without its nuances. I mean, again, just to throw in a statistic, which um, I think um, Tom and Cindy may have heard elsewhere, but I always think it's worth quoting. When the British Council recently uh, polled uh, Chinese middle class uh, citizens, they actually got very high favorability ratings uh, for both France and the UK amongst those middle classes, about you know 80% plus people saying actually they had a good impression of those countries, which doesn't mean that those countries don't get plenty of harassment on social media when, as has just happened the last couple of days, the EU, the UK, Canada, US all have come together to again put in a set of sanctions that in some ways uh, is following up on the, on the Biden sanctions. And it is perfectly possible for the Chinese general public both to maintain the idea that there are many things that they really, you know, enjoy about the Western world and actually have significant respect for, even Japan, you know, a country which you know well and which is often in, in some dispute with China, but at the same time, develop a stronger and stronger and stronger feeling that actually China is really being hard done by. It's being put upon by the outside world. And to quote the great Padashevsky line, you know, Peter Finch and Network, they're mad as hell and not going to take it anymore. And I think the difficulty is that we understand in ourselves and our own societies that you can have different emotional registers about all sorts of things. I mean, to give an example, which is familiar at the moment to, to lots of Brexit, um, sorry, lots of British people. There you are. There's a Freudian slip. Lots of Brexit people, lots of British people, which is that you can be immensely proud of so many things the UK does and still have regrets about uh, about Brexit. You can be immensely pleased about Brexit and still think there are all sorts of things to do with, you know, poverty and uh, uh, levelling up in parts of the country that need to, to be dealt with. So ambiguity is something we deal with in our everyday lives. I think it's often rather one of these problems that needs to be dealt with in terms of understanding to know that China, even though it's not a democracy, also has all sorts of nuance in its emotion. And the direct answer to your question is that I think that this was being emotionally pitched in ways that primarily spoke to a domestic audience. But I think even more than that, and I think this is actually something that is worth thinking, I'd love to know, particularly if I may, Cindy, uh, whether you agree with this, in terms of emotional repertoires that don't necessarily fit with exactly what Americans or indeed Western Europeans would consider to be major um, 
emotional areas of response. I'm thinking about terms like that usually get translated like sincerity, you know, the idea that by doing this, the Americans were being insincere in what they do. And, you know, it does translate into English, you know, you can talk about people being sincere, insincere, but that whole quality of Chung has a whole, you know, quality of wholeheartedness, of being involved in a project where both sides, you know, understand what the agenda is in, in, in certain ways, and then of being betrayed in a sense when they're not, uh, they're not actually able to, to, to see that that's what's going on. Now, we might argue there are all sorts of reasons why sincerity is the last thing that you would attribute to leaders of the Chinese Communist Party. But the point is, they're not writing this rhetoric for you. They're writing it for an emotional repertoire that makes sense in the political universe in which they live. And that universe is a, a universe in which you know, the politics is Marxist-Leninist. The philosophical context is you know, Confucian and legalist. And the wider political context is highly economistic. The only one thing that is not in that mixture is being liberal. And because that's so central as a starting point with a small L liberal for what, you know, everyone in that room on the American side was was, was thinking about, it means that I think there was a sort of lack of meeting of minds from the very first uh, first position. Misha, if I can come in uh, just just briefly, just to um, add to Rana's point, um, going on to Chinese social media after the Anchorage meeting, it was interesting what was trending about that meeting. So two things mainly. First was about um, why the Americans kicked journalists out of the room. Now, of course, we know journalists were meant to be out of the room for quite a while anyway, but the way it was portrayed in Chinese media was as if Americans didn't want journalists to report what they had, to, what, what the Chinese rebuttal was, um, whereas they made the journalists stay for the American rebuttal, and so that sincerity comes into it because hypocrisy, American hypocrisy, is a massive um, chip on the shoulder of a lot of Chinese uh, wider public when it comes to looking at international relations. Bear in mind the Chinese don't think that they're the baddies, right? <laughs> it's like that Mitchell Webb sketch. I, I don't know if your American listeners know who not one Nazi I soldier don't tends. Think we do. <laughs> one Nazi soldier turns to the other Nazi soldier says are we the baddies right so, so when you're steeped in that you don't know I and mean, I'm not saying I'm not comparing the Chinese Communist Party to the Nazis at all but I'm just saying everyone has their own perspective and when you're steeped in that you don't know how other people are seeing you so that's one thing to bear in mind. The second thing that was trending was that Yang Jiechi, one of the negotiators, had instant noodles for lunch. And that was seen in China as this huge signal of American inhospitality. How can they how can they invite him to Alaska and not even give him a proper meal? And he just had to have instant noodles. And that was also trending on Chinese media. You know, what's interesting about that is, is if you remember, one of the uh, comments that Trump got slammed for uh, was talking about, you know, if you invite the Chinese, uh, don't do a state banquet, give them McDonald's and then sit down and, and start talking seriously. But don't do the state banquet thing because we have too many problems. So it, it's yet another way, and it seems, in which the Biden administration is putting into practice what the what the Trump administration was talking about by forcing indeed instant noodles. And, and if I could pick on that just very briefly, because I think it really gets to this point. I mean, again, Cindy, you know, Thomas want to back, and Misha back me up on this. In East Asia in general, and in China in particular, inviting people to eat with you or not eat with you has huge. It's called commensality by anthropologists who love a fancy schmancy word, and by basically putting forward a gesture in which actually you're saying you're not eating together. You're saying an awful lot more than basically 
either that both sides haven't got time or more that actually you don't, you know, if, if, if Westerners don't eat together, it's a sign that you're kind of having a formal conversation, but you don't want to make more of it than that. Not eating at all together in the Chinese context, that is a very big and very negative deal. So so you mentioned East Asia, which is perfect segue, because before we wrap up, I, I would like to talk about the broader um, uh, topic. And we, we did, we, we started with the Indo-Pacific, we narrowed down to China. I'd like to come back out, but in the sense of talking about the UK's partners, um, uh, all of you in different ways have made the really interesting uh, comment and insight that the integrated view in many ways really is about China. Uh, it's about if, you know, if you're talking about a post World War II order world. It's a world that's being uh, shaped in many ways by China, driven by China, whether for good or bad, or, or as Cindy was saying, the baddies or not. Um, and, and so the, the integrated review in many ways is trying to respond to that, especially when you, you start drilling down and talking about the science and tech areas that the UK wants to remain uh, competitive and world leading in, you know, from the US perspective, uh, it's very much how do you do that while dealing with China, many, you know, Silicon Valley, where Stanford's located is, is thinking about all continues to think about about partnerships. So these are things the UK will have to um, will have to grapple with. But what I'd like to ask is about other partners in Asia, in fact, partners, because the, the question is whether China is really going to be a partner or not. Who are those partners? Uh, is it Japan? Uh, can it be India? Uh, obviously, Australia is in there. What do each of you see as as the 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 salient value of partners? Which are the partners, and what should the UK be doing now? For the US, of course, we're very structured by the you know by our um, our alliances, and yet the Biden administration has continued the Trump revitalization of the Quad. President Biden had the first uh, leaders meeting of the Quad. This is very good; it should continue. But we're just beginning to think about what the Quad should do for the UK. Who are the partners? How important are they? And what should you be doing with them? Um, I mean, Tom, do you want to kick off on that? Sure. I mean, look, the partners depend, frankly. And and one of the problems we've got ourselves into is that we've got into this idea that there are fixed partners, there are eternal partners, they are always the same partners for everything. And the reality is they're not. You know, I think there are some partners with whom we can not only defend but extend uh, the rules, you know, the rules that allow us to trade in prosperity and peace. And those are countries like... Uh, Japan and the United States and Canada and Australia. There are other countries that we share um, a geopolitical outlook with, uh, most particularly, obviously, most obviously, it's the Five Eyes. There are other countries we share um, outlooks on environmental diplomacy or partnerships uh, that will build up uh, different forms of strength. And there, you know, maybe we could include uh, some countries whose human rights records, frankly, leave quite a lot to be desired. And then there are other partners who, um, you know, we share something like vaccine technology, we share um, common heritage and therefore uh, travel arrangements, you know, and this sort of very lateral diplomacy, as it were, this where you build up a a different form of uh, structured cooperation. And maybe you don't even lead it, but you just enable it. So you allow, for example, uh, I'm making this up now, but a Lithuanian lead to use British embassies to build up a partnership, or you use, uh, you know, you empower... Um, a French lead, God forbid, to uh, create a network that uh, we might uh, wish to develop together, you know, is is certainly one way of doing this. Because the alternative, I'm afraid, is to is to go back to uh, what one Australian prime minister said to me the other day when I asked him what is Australia's foreign policy towards this, and he just said, "Oh, well, that's easy. It's God bless America." <laughs> now, if we don't want it to be that. We need to build up our own different partnerships, not always leading them, but certainly given that we have a very strong diplomatic network, 
you know, enabling others and making sure that they're partners in ways that we can work so together. So no permanent partners, but permanent interests. I think I've heard that somewhere before. You may have heard Possibly. that before. <laughs> you may have heard that before. But it's, 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 it's about the change in structure. Look, I mean, the reality is, the simple reality is that multilateralism is under threat. You can look at Britain's departure from the European Union, uh, from Trump's attack on the UN and on NATO. Uh, you can look at uh, the different ways in which the WTO system is, frankly, largely uh, well, struggling, uh, to put it politely. And, you know, there are responses to it. And some people come to the response of we need a NATO for trade. And certainly there's arguments uh, towards that. After all, that's exactly what the GATT agreement was in the 1940s. Um, and so, you know, there's certainly ways of looking at it. But the reality is the world has changed. The, the development of the, um, the partnerships and the way in which people interact and social media, Zoom, I mean, what we're doing now, changes the way people communicate and the way people um, partner. So it, it's only normal, I think, that we have a, you know, the ability to marry and divorce as easily in diplomacy as we can in other ways. Cindy, um, not to go into the marriage and divorce sides, but who who are the you know who who are the the partners that you think make sense for Britain uh, going forward, especially in light of, of, of this review? It's a really good question. And I think actually Biden has found the same partners, which are the quad, essentially. The mm-hmm. awkward thing for the UK is that the UK is not part of the quad because it's not part of the region. Um, but, you know, if you look at the Westminster chatter from last summer, for example, India was touted, Japan was touted, Australia, certainly. There was a lot of outrage here about the way China has treated Australia over the last mm-hmm. year. Um, but I think, uh, and then beyond that, the Boris Johnson government has this ambition to create what's called a D10 alliance, the Dem- Democratic 10, like a sort of new anti-China NATO. And obviously, everyone's had this idea. Everyone wants to do a new anti-China NATO. But what Boris Johnson wants to do is to use the upcoming G7 uh, summit happening in Cornwall in the UK as a way to broker that and to invite other countries like South Korea to the table. The problem mm-hmm. is, and this goes back to what we were talking about earlier with the pit force for the Indo-Pacific is that the UK doesn't really understand the regional and I'm sure there are people in the UK who do but there's a lot of ignorance about the regional dimensions there so in the G7 meeting, Japan has put its foot down and says South Korea can't come because Japan wants to be the leading power in East Asia. South Korea is obviously, you know, understandably cheesed off because of South Korea and Japan's history and not least to mention war crimes and recognition of the Second World War uh, uh, record there. India, for example, we, we want to invite them to the D10 alliance, but Narendra Modi's government is probably not what we would call a liberal democracy. And we're seeing that um, India does not have the same foreign policy interests as the UK, because at the moment, uh, the UK might have a vaccine shortage because Modi's government seems to have acquisitioned one of the manufacturers from, from India. So millions of doses um, are going to be talked about when Boris uh, visits India later this year. So I think we know who we want to partner with and as tom says maybe we know too well too specifically who who our partners we want to be but i don't know if our partners really have the same interests when it comes to china and when it comes to broader interests um as we want them to and there's a lot of there's a lot of regional complication there where a term like indo-pacific just doesn't really cover and it it kind of just papers over i think it's a great point about the the potential mismatched expectations and 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 then ultimately what they mean in terms of diplomacy rana what is what is your sense of uh, of that? Do you do you see it again from a often from a historical perspective that there are some more natural partners, or or is it very and and how transactional should it be? By the way, 
So I think one of the things that shows that there is potential um, that history shows is one of the relationships that I am always both pleased and interested to see isn't nearly as bad, or actually not bad at all in the way that it could be. And that's the relationship between Britain and India. If you think about it, you know, much of the language that's used, not least by members of parliament on Tom's side of, uh, of the house, is about, you know, longstanding historical ties and the way in which, you know, English language and parliamentary democracy and all these things bring us together. It's not usually phrased as basically Robert Clive, who was, you know, sort of manic in his manic phrase at that stage, turns up in East Bengal uh, in uh, the late 18th century, takes most of it over without permission, uh, then takes over most of his mates, take over the rest of the country, uh, grow a lot of opium, (laughs) shoot a bunch of people bring in railways, to be fair, and also create actually an extremely lively hybrid What about the cricket run? Without which... Oh, yeah, well, the cricket's to the next podcast, I have to say. The Americans listening to this will really love that one, uh, that one, Cindy. But my point, be, and, you know, it produces, you know, me as a British Asian, I should explain for, 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 for uh, British South Asian, I should say, for American listeners sitting in Oxford at the moment. So, uh, you know, without the empire, I certainly wouldn't be, uh, wouldn't be here. My point is that with all that going on, the relationship between the United Kingdom today and India today is actually pretty friendly and pretty productive and pretty warm in all sorts of ways, in a way that relationship between a colonial state and its former colony is not guaranteed to be in any way. And I think we ought to think more about why that is, because it certainly isn't the case, you know, China was never a colony of Britain, but it was, you know, sometimes called a semi-colony, it's a Marxist term. And actually the relationship has been a lot more scratchy throughout much of that, most of that time for a variety of reasons. It's not just because of communism. It was also true in the early 20th century during the era of Chiang Kai-shek, who, although more pro-Western, was not fond of the West in, in any sense. It's not true, it's less true actually in a variety of, of some of uh, Britain's former uh, uh, African colonies, although the relationship still is, is very warm in, in, in many places as, as well. So understanding why that is, I think, is an important part of the historical dynamic that could help, I think, to give some sort of shape to what it is that the UK can do today in the region. And to answer that part of your question, and to pick up on you know what Tom, Tom and Cindy have, have said, but again, I, I think it's entirely right, and I, I, I do agree with. In terms of what I'd want the UK to do, I think that the UK, I mean, again, as I said, I think the UK can have actually really quite an important and significant but quite focused role in terms of making, of having influence in Asia. And as I say, there are areas, you know, as I say, perhaps more the kind of soft but very important skills like education you know we're, we're very big on that sort of area where we want to do more those science science superpower states we're talking about you know are we talking as we should do to places like the national university of singapore which actually have real aspirations in that direction use the turing scheme for that would be one one example of, of something practical i'd suggest but the strategic element that i put forward is this people need to look at britain's asia commitments and not think of them as static first of all do what Tom and Cindy have both been saying, think about them as changeable, but also think about them as coming in different stages. So let me just give you one specific example, which I haven't yet heard properly gamed out, but which I think is going to be really interesting, which is this. The UK is now, I think, you know, signed up to be part of the CPTPP, which we've, we've mentioned more than uh, more than once. At the moment, it doesn't seem like it's very likely the US is going to come in, come back into that, which, of course, making it a sort of Asian trade NATO would make it make it harder. But OK. But of course, the country that is very interested in getting involved these days in CPTPP is China. Now, if Britain were a member, would it have a veto right over China's membership? Would it allow China in? If China were to be allowed in, would the framework 
on issues such as um, uh, tariff barriers or beyond that norms, uh, the use of forced labor. You can see where we might be going with this. The thing is that I don't think there's going to be a scenario where a, uh, uh, an alliance mainly of 11 or 12 Asian trading nations is going to let a member state that's not in the region essentially veto its aspirations in, in Asia, particularly which when, which, when you look at some of those powers. And here, Misha, I'm thinking of Japan. You know, Japan obviously has a vested interest in having as many allies as possible say no to China on its behalf, as well as doing it in its own right. It's also putting new investment, the last time I checked, into its Matsushita plant, plants in Jiangxi province and other parts of mainland China. And it's going to continue doing more of that because the economic relationship between Japan and China is extremely extensive. It's not going to go away. And even if the politics is cold, as they say, the economics remains remains very hot. Unless the UK is in a position where more than, I think at the moment, 3.5% of its GDP is trade with China, then it's not going to be able to have that kind of influence to be able to change that sort of trading alliance. And if it does increase its trading share with China, then it runs the problem of the Australia trap in which too much of its trade is tied to China. In other words, all of these things, you know, they're not insoluble, but you have to make choices. Sometimes they're hard choices and you have to make choices which think, supposing this happened, what would happen next? And then game it two, three, four stages out. And although I'm not privy to what goes on in, in government, I you know just sit and write books in, in, in Oxford, I don't have a sense, at least from the public discussion, that the understanding both of how integral China is to the region and also what realistically a middle-sized, significant, well-respected European-located power with relatively small economic heft at the moment in Asia can do to have a short-term but real effect on those dynamics, which in the end are not going to be shaped by the UK, but will be shaped by the big, large, growing economies of the region in which these debates are actually taking place. Tom, I want to give you the last word. Well, there was, uh, there's just a quick observation building on Rana's point. You know, we've been dialogue partners with ASEAN for many years now as part of the European Union. We're going to be dialogue partners in our own right, which is... Uh, a welcome return. Um, but what's interesting is when you talk about ASEAN or you talk about CT mm -hmm. CPTPP, the bit that we're missing, of course, is the RCEP deal, the Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership, which which already includes China. And so unless uh, you know we're going to seek to uh, change the way that the region deals with itself, which I think would be challenging for all the reasons Rana sets out, the reality is that we're going to be buying into a different system. Now, the reason many of us have been uh, cautious about engaging, engaging with China is not just the human rights reasons or, you know, slavery accusations of Xinjiang or the anti-democratic forces in Hong Kong, although those are all important and relevant issues. It's actually that the norms and standards of our everyday life are increasingly being set by a culture with values that simply are not shared by ours their views on privacy, their views on the state, their views on individual ownership, their views on community are very different. And just as we coded our values into the trading system of the 18th and 19th century through the English language laws that we wrote, they are coding it in perfectly understandably, perfectly legitimately through the binary code that now runs on Huawei or ZTE uh, systems and is being increasingly encoded into every piece of battery technology, every phone, every computer, and so on. So these are challenges that unless we're willing to engage in, uh, and engage in by building alternatives 
not just by joining partnerships that adopt them, we're simply not going to have any say over. And actually, all we'll be doing is accelerating uh, our, uh, you know, China's position and dominance. We won't be we won't be changing anything. And that's why I say this uh, integrated review offers two alternatives at the same time. One is fundamentally to stand up to China, and it does so in a coded language that we've already touched on. And the other is to effectively integrate with China, and it does so in a different coded language later on in the pamphlet. So let's see which way the government goes. Well, I think the um, the, the the gauntlet, in a sense, that you've that you've thrown down, uh, which is what is the alternative? Uh, that that to me really seems to be to be the key, and I think it's something that. Uh, Rana and Cindy both uh, both hinted at as well. Um, it's clearly been very frustrating uh, in terms of thinking about things like 5G. There really hasn't been an alternative. There has not been the ability to either think about partnerships or domestic responses. Uh, but this this is much bigger than that, and I think it's really useful from the Washington side to see you know how uh, in London you're thinking about it both in Parliament, uh, in the universities, in in the uh, the opinion areas of of society and the like and hopefully what it'll do is lead to uh, a lot of conversations uh between between both sides um uh going forward so uh we're thrilled that you guys could join us uh again today on the pacific century cindy Yu, the broadcast editor of the spectator uh rana mitter professor of history and uh modern chinese politics at the university of oxford and tom tugendhat mp chair of the Foreign Affairs Committee, and most important role, occasional co-host of this very podcast. So thank you so much, uh, and we hope that you guys will come back and and we'll be able to talk about this more. Uh, I am Misha Oslin for The Pacific Century. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society. For more information about our work, And to hear more of our podcasts or see our video content, please visit hoover.org.